But one of the most important books as we enter into this Advent season, this is, and in fact, this is uh, Happy New Year to you. This is the beginning of the Christian year. Uh, we begin on the first Sunday of Advent, and it goes all the way through. Um, so this is, this is where we're beginning um, this morning. One of the most important books ever written in the, Christian, uh, in the Christian world, what shaped your mind today, even though you probably don't recognize it, is a book entitled Cur Deus Homo, which is um, written by St. Anselm in, in 1099, and it's translated, Why Did God Become Man? Why did God become man? It's a really important question, and it's shaped much of our Christian thought over the years. And as we enter into the Christian season of Advent, thinking about the coming of the Messiah, I want to ask that question. Why did God become man? Because central to the Christian claim, central to what we're all about, is that we are claiming that Jesus Christ fulfills the words of the prophet. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we say that this prophecy, written hundreds of years before Jesus, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the question um, that begins to be asked is, is those words found in Isaiah 6, everlasting Father and mighty God. How can you attribute that to a person? And he is uh, here echoing David, who wrote long before in Psalm 2, which is our text for the day. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to flip open and find Psalm 2. Uh, echoing David, who tells us that there's going to come a Son of God who will be anointed by God and, uh, and that's a very puzzling statement as well. It reveals that God is coming in flesh, that God is coming into the world in flesh, and that's a really tremendous thought. We could spend all day pondering the mystery of what that means, to say the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's big. That's big. And that leads us, I think, to an important question, the question that St. Anselm gave us way back when. Uh, why would God do that? I mean, there's any number of ways that God could have saved us. Why did God do it this way? Why did God become man? And I think, I, I think at the outset, some of you are prepared to answer. I think if I sat you down and nine times out of ten I asked that question, why did God become man? You would come back at me with something like, well, to die on the cross for my sins. And that's not wrong, but that seems to me to be quite reductionistic. Seems to shrink down all of who God is in coming in flesh to something that is very much focused on me. And so I see two very big problems with, with answering the question in the way that I think we are very prepared to answer that question. And I think it reduces, the problem is that it's reductionistic in that first it is consumeristic. And when I reduce the gospel, the coming of Jesus to me and my problem with sin, I suddenly make everything about what God can do for me. And that is a very big problem in America today. Right? We, we have a problem with that. So even though it's not, not false that Jesus came and died on the cross and that took care of my sin, that's, that's all very true. When I narrate the gospel in that way, people begin to think of it, oh, God does something for me, great. But is that the whole of the gospel? Is that the reason God came to earth? The second problem that I have with that is it's very individualistic. God came to save me, right? Me. 
And while I recognize, even as I say that, there's lots of other me's out there. I see a few of them here today, right? There's lots of other me's out there. When we narrate the gospel in this way, we are individualizing it to the extent of which it becomes, again, about, about me. It's all about me. And so if we notice... Uh, if we notice that Christianity in the West seems to be very self-centered, very self-focused, what does God do for me? What does the church do for me? How, what do I get out of this service or that service or this book or that book? What about me? When we reduce it to that, and we notice that there's that, that, that um, self-centeredness, perhaps it begins that we are narrating the gospel in a reductionistic way that allows people to be selfish, allows people to be self-centered. So the question why did God become man, to me, seems very, very important, not just in a broad, general sense, but especially to us today, especially in Western Christianity. And I think that what we would find as we, as we raise this question of why God became man, and we searched or researched the scriptures, we would find something much larger, much bigger, much more majestic, much more God-centered than sometimes the way that we talk about it. In fact, I really like, I'm on a Latin kick right now. I apologize for that. There's no excuse for it. I just, I like it. Um, and Christmas, like, I like to listen to Gregorian chant at Christmas, and so it's, it's, you don't want to stop by the office. It's bad news. Um, but anyway, uh, in the 1500s, there was a, a phrase that became very popular, and, it, and, I, and, I, and I love it because I think it captures captures this question very nicely. Christus Vincent, Christus Regnat, Christus Imperiet. Christ conquers, Christ reigns, Christ commands. Christ conquers, Christ reigns, Christ commands. That I see to be very, very different than the way I see us narrating the gospel. And to me, I think that sounds rich and much more scriptural if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2, that's where we'll, we'll begin today. I think one of the things that we need to do and what we'll be doing over the next uh, few weeks of, of Advent is exploring the prophecies as we anticipate the incarnation of Jesus Christ, as we anticipate the feast of the nativity of our Lord and Savior. We should begin by searching out the prophecies, because the prophets reveal to us why God is sending Jesus into the world. Why did God become man? The prophets begin to tell us why God became man. And one of the central places that we can begin that is reading in Psalms. But what I wanted to read first is that Revelation invokes Psalm 2. And this is, of course, my favorite of all of the nativity narrations. We have them in Luke, and we have them in Matthew, and then we have one in Revelation chapter 12 and I love it. So, Revelation 12, verse 1 says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's a little different than away in a manger, but I really, really like it. Um, 
And what I find so fascinating about this narration of Jesus' birth is it, is it lacks all of our usual conversations. It lacks sin, it lacks the cross, it lacks all of these other things. But it is very specific about this, that the devil wants to devour the child, but the child has come to do something specific, and that something specific is to conquer, is to reign, and is to command. So, let's look at Psalm uh, chapter 2. Thinking about Christus Vincent, Christ conquering. Well, we have in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles, 448. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords from us. Now, the psalms, you have to understand, are not randomly ordered. It wasn't just sort of, well, let's do this psalm and then this psalm and this psalm. No, they're, they're, they're ordered in a specific way. So Psalm 1, if you're hopefully familiar with it, Psalm 1 narrates for us the way of the righteous. You say that very, you probably on the first page there, verse 1 of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not delight um, um, in the way of the sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, all these things. It's describing the righteous path of the righteous person. If you want to be in the good way, then you will root yourself in the law of God. You will read the scriptures and you will just you will dive into it and that will be where you find your life and your direction. So that's how Psalm 1 introduces introduces the book of Psalms to us. Psalm 2 is very similar in a different way. Instead of describing the way of the righteous, it describes the way of the wicked. It reveals to us the path, the way of thinking, the way of life of the rest of the world. So if Psalm 1 is focused on those who follow God, Psalm 2 is focused on those who don't follow God. And what do we see primarily in these folks, beginning there in verses 1 and 2? It says that they rage. Some of your versions might say conspire. This word um, means literally agitation, uh, like like it, it, isn't, it isn't rage in the sense of rah or conspire like they're whispering together, but just there's no peace. It's, it's, it, there's agitation. And don't we see this? I listen to um, BBC World almost every day, um, mainly just because I like the accents. But uh, all I hear in the news is that, like agitation. Not, not, not even necessarily always like war or something like that, but always conflict, isn't there? Always, always gossip, always controversy, always, always agitation. And the peoples, they're just, they're agitated and they're together in vanity. It says that they plot in vain. And, and plot here, don't think of it in the sense of just like, like plotting to take over something, but plotting in the plans that they make. The plans that they make are vanity. They're making plans for this thing or that thing, and it's always about something silly. It's always about controversy. It's always vain and meaningless. And, and that's, that's kind of what we get this picture of. The entire world is sort of captured up in agitation and in meaninglessness. Didn't we feel that way before we came to Jesus? And maybe some of you here today, maybe there's somebody here today who feels that uh, now you sense a lack of peace, you sense agitation, you're uncomfortable, you're unsettled, you're not happy, you're not content, you just can't stop. It's, there's something in you that's, that's just, words can't describe it, but there is no peace. 
And if that's you today, I would direct you to the one who is called the Prince of Peace. There's a drastic, dis, um, a drastic difference between these two people. Likewise, the scriptures say here they're leaders. It says here kings, but I think we could expand that beyond kingship because obviously we don't have kings today. But what do we have? We have presidents, we have CEOs, we have uh, movie stars and music stars. We have people who, through wealth or through power, are able to shape public opinion, shape public policy, able to make decisions that, that begin to shape the way that people think about the world. One of the, the greatest things that you can do to understand the world around you is to watch primetime television, right? I mean, that will tell you what people think about marriage. That will tell you about what people think about right and wrong. That will tell you what they think about authority. Right? I mean, we, and we see that, and if you dare to do that, you should be very bothered by the world we live in. Yes? It's scary. It's scary. And what do I notice in there? As I notice, especially in this, this, uh, this, this TV show, The Modern Family, just and I, I know many of you probably like it, and it's, it, it's, it's funny, it's supposed to be funny, but I notice in there agitation, brokenness. Is there anything that's whole in that entire show? All brokenness. And there is this, shall I say, conspiracy of thought. Because what we see with everything is that everyone all the time wants to convince you to believe and to be like them. I want to do that. I want you to become a fire-breathing, dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore, Bible-thumping Christian. Like that is, cards on the table, that is what I want from you. I want to convince you of that. I want you to, to walk away from this, convinced that Christ has conquered, that he has conquered sin, that he has conquered death, and that he is coming again to conquer the world, and that that should change absolutely everything about what you think and what you do. And don't you for a second think that everybody who has gathered money and time and power and made an entire TV show so that your children would sit and watch in front of it are not thinking the same thing. Right? So be careful. The kings conspire. The leaders conspire. They want to convince. They want to shape. They want to change. They want to make. And it is all in this one thing. It is to rebel against God. Do you notice that there? In verse 3, they have all come together and they have seen the Lord and they have seen the anointed and they have said, you know what? I don't want to do what you're telling me to do. I want to hover over that word anointed for a second. I think it deserves um, some attention because it is so very important to our Christian claim and why we need to see Psalm 2 as a prophetic revelation of Jesus' own coming. The word anointed, as many of you know, is, is, a Greek, is, is, a, is an English word and it means to pour oil over something. And, and so this is what kings would do. They would, they would get oil poured over their head and this was a sign of their being set apart as a king. And if we think about Jesus and his coming when he, when he did uh, finally arrive and had grown into adulthood, you could imagine or you know that the entire uh, group of Israel was waiting for a king to come. They were waiting for the prophecies to be fulfilled. Jeremiah 23.5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch that is another king right a branch off of David family trees you know how they have those branches right same thing a branch 
a new son. And what would this son do? He shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. And they're awaiting this to happen. Now, flash forward and, and just put in your mind for a second. Remember the story of Jesus in his baptism where he goes under and he comes back up. And what d- happens? The heavens split open, don't they? And the dove ascend, descends upon him. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah chapter um, chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord of uh, the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. And so when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is the Greek word for anointed. We're saying literally Jesus, the anointed one. And so throughout the scriptures, uh, especially the New Testament, every time we see Jesus Christ, we see Jesus, the anointed. It should draw our minds all the way back to Psalm chapter 2, where it reveals to us what people will do when they see God's anointed, and what have they done in seeing God's anointed? They have rejected his truth. That's what we have. We have said, I like this part of Jesus, and this is normally what we get. I like the whole maybe love bit of Jesus, but I don't like this other bit of Jesus. And so I cast the other stuff off. I cast it off, breaking the bonds that hold us to God's law. So what we have here in these first three verses is really an exposition of the world, a revelation of what the world is and what it is doing, and this is what is written into every generation. I can't tell you how many awful kid movies I have seen over the past five years. It's just been just like a steady stream of garbage um, in Barbie form. Actually, you know, honestly, the truth is the Barbie movies are some of the most moral movies, way better than any Disney movie. Like, I, it's shocking how good, like, s- some of those stories, not good, the stories are terrible, but, like, the moral ending is, is, is much better. I'm more comfortable with Barbie than I am with the rest of them. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the funny thing is this universal message that, like, your, your teachers are morons, your parents are idiots, no, you, no, one can, no one knows what's best for you except for you, so... Follow your heart, right? Follow your heart. And the application here we have in verses 1 through 3 is that universally we have decided to not follow Jesus, young and old, rich and powerful, intelligentsia and illiterate. Everyone has rebelled against the king of kings. So verses 4 through 6, what is God's response to our sin. And this is, this is an important, I think, way to think about sin. Instead of thinking about sin as just sort of like the, the things that I do are wrong, but we should see sin, obviously the things that I do are wrong are a part of that, but they're a part of a cosmic envelope of rebellion against who God is and what God says. And so how does God respond? I love this. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Verse four, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What is God's response to our rebellion and our sinfulness? He mocks us. I love the word derision there. I, 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 I really love that line. Like I, I think that's so different than the way that we talk about sin. And we talk about how sin breaks God's heart, or we'll talk about how it makes God sad. And certainly it breaks God's heart, and certainly it makes him sad. But what does the scripture say here about sin? It says that God sees our rebellion, and he says, that's nonsense. That's foolishness. He mocks it. 
He holds it in derision. Um, so, or, so bring it back to the question of why did God become man and our sort of reductionistic answer of uh, because he needed to die for my sin. This doesn't seem to be the way that the psalmist thinks about sin. Uh, sin here is attached to two things that I know that we are allergic to in our modern world. Wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. So certainly we would say that Jesus came to save sinners. He came to garner and gather a people for himself. He conquered sin, the devil, and death in order to preserve and to protect and to build a people who will dwell within his kingdom. But when God sees sin, how does he see it? He sees it with wrath. He sees it with fury. He sees it with derision. He sees us as children who think that we've gotten away with the crime of the century by stealing a cookie, knowing that only we're, we're only going to make ourselves sick before dinner, right? I and mean, that's what's going on. And he sees it as childishness, as foolishness. And so when we are tempted towards sin, maybe this would help us in our resistance towards sin. We're tempted towards sin. Look at it the way that God sees it. It is a waste. It is vanity. It is foolishness. And what is he going to do when he sees it? He's going to mock it. And then he will speak to them with his wrath, and he will terrify them with his fury. Never think that God looks upon sin with anything less than wrath and fury. He forgives, but how does he see sin itself? He sees it for what it is, the blackness of rebellion against him. And so what does he done in order to take care of it? What is he going to do about it? The nations, the people, the kings, the powerful, everyone has resisted and said, we're casting your cords from us. You have no say over our lives. We're going to do what we want. Forget you, God. I don't care about it. What's God going to do? He looks from heaven and he laughs at the whole mess. And he says, I will set my king on Zion. And this should draw our mind to two applications. First, what has been done. That is that on that cruel cross, sin was defeated. And anyone who wants nothing more to do with the paths of foolishness, with the paths of vanity, with the paths of unrighteousness, can cast that cord aside and bind themselves to the rock of ages and be saved not only in this life, but in the life to come. Because in the tomb, up from the grave from which he arose, he defeated Satan and he defeated death. He can never be stopped. He can never be quenched. He can never be pulled back. He is a marching forward force, a conquering hero, and no one will stop him. And we know the second application being this, that he will alight again on Mount Zion, and in that day he will break the world with a rod of iron, and he will dash all rebellion like a piece of clay pottery. And you do not want to be in his bad graces on that day. And so it is very important that we recognize this line, that we underline it in our heart and in our lives, that we resist every impulse toward temptation, that we repent of every evil deed, that we let go of all of this, and that we make it our priority, our passion, to share this truth with those who are lost. Because it is not God's will that any would be lost. It is his will that all would come to him and be a part of his kingdom. And how can they know if they haven't heard? And how can they hear if you don't go out and tell them? 
I have sent my king on Zion, my holy hill. And as we read these words, we who are believers should tremble in joy, and those of us who are not believers should tremble in fear. Verse 7, I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, Here we get that repetition from um, Revelation in the telling. And also I want you to notice in verse 7 the connections we have to the New Testament. We might remember John 1 in which it tells us Um, that Jesus is the only begotten Son. Or we might remember the stories of Jesus' own baptism, where the the Spirit of God alights upon him in the form of a dove, but we also hear from heaven itself, God speaking, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so we have here connections to Jesus as the Son of God. And I remember, um, I think she was three she might have been a little bit older, but talking with Emery, and I mentioned something about Jesus being God, and she uh, laughed and held me in derision and said, silly, Jesus isn't God. He's God's son. And you think you know a lot about the Bible until you have to explain uh, the Trinity to a three-year-old. Like, really, really difficult, really difficult thing to do. And so I'm like, well, yeah, no, yeah, yes. How do I not be a heretic right now? I'm not sure what, which way to go. Um, and, and I think that this is an important question because it's brought up here that God was going to become man. It's framed in our question, why did God become man? And uh, our, our neighbors over here, one of these here's, somewhere around here, directions are terrible. You, you guys are all pointing in different directions. <laughs> here, our friends over here, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses of whom I've... It's okay. This is why we need windows in here, y'all. We need windows. I can't see. Um, so anyway, our, our Jehovah Witness friends, um, who are very nice people, make this central claim that Jesus is not. He's the son of God. He's a created being. And, and this, is, this is how a, a dangerous, and I'm, I'm going to say it in, in, in as much gentleness as I can, that is a dangerous heresy. Um, that is absolutely false teaching. Uh, but how do we answer the question? And so I want to give you sort of my breakdown of an argument, um, and, and it begins with the first premise. Let's presume that the people who wrote the Bible are not morons, okay? That if they wrote something, uh, and there was a deep contradiction between these two things, they are smart enough to recognize it, okay? Can we begin with that present presupposition? They're, they're intelligent people. These are the smartest people in the world at this time, because to write and to read, I mean, you're like the 1%. So they're not dumb. They argue rigorously and scandalously because this is what sets Israel apart from the entire ancient world. The entire ancient world had a pantheon. And these Jews are saying, no, there's only one God. This is why Christians were called atheists by Romans because they thought that Christians were anti the gods. No, we're anti all the other gods, right? We worship one God because there is but one God. So they make this argument, there is one God, and then they attribute godness to Jesus. Oops. Right? So what does this tell us? This tells us that this was clearly an intentional decision to claim that there is one God and then to say, well, here's God's son. Or here's, you know, here's uh, the incarnation. You have these kinds of things. So 
Um, if, we, if we accept all of those premises, then finally we would get to the question of why the Son of God. And I say, why the Son of God? Because Son— well, let me, let me back up, and let's, let's say this as well. So, um, they're not dumb. They argue there's one God. Then they attribute Godness to Jesus. Explain in one word how you can have three separate beings who are also of one essence, of one being. One word. Go. No. It's okay if you don't come up with one. The, the best thing that they've come up with for 2,000 years is Trinity. And that just means three, right? Because, like, there's no word that you can get to, like, how do you do that? They, there, there's, no, there's no word that, that could, could summarize this great mystery. And so what are we going to do in order to, to bring us to understand that Jesus is God? The only thing that you could do is, is attribute something like sonship, because we recognize that. I understand intuitively that if Laura gets pregnant again, she probably will not have a giraffe. She'll probably have a human being. I sure hope, right? I mean, that's just, that, that's logical. And so we understand then if we read Son of God that somehow there is a relationship genetically, although they wouldn't have thought necessarily genetically, but genetically with Godness. Therefore, this is the way that we can, in our limited human perspective, understand the smallest fragment of a degree that Jesus is God in flesh. And the fact that we can't wrap our minds around God just proves that we're not God, which is no surprise, hopefully, to any of you. Um, and so it seems very logical, then, that you would have this, this progression, that you would reveal Jesus as God via this uh, metaphor of the Son of God. Good. Okay, and what is the Son going to do? He is coming... Uh, he is coming to rule and he is coming to reign. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Uh, this um, ends with a final, this whole psalm then um, is revealing uh, the great story arc of Scripture. Really, you have all of human history kind of shoved into just, how many? Twelve short verses. Um, you have humanity's rebellion against God. You have God looking down and doing something about it. And what is he going to do? He is going to send his Son, he is going to come, God in flesh. He is coming to conquer, he is coming to reign, and he is coming to command. And first he must conquer, because there are people, there is kingdoms, that are set up against him. Arguments, thoughts, ways of life, all of these things have been set against the Son, and the Son is coming to conquer them, so that he may be in all, through all, to all, for all. This is why he is coming. And so we have this application here given to us, this great warning, listen up and serve the Lord before it's too late. So let me give you a few applications that I'd, I'd like for you to leave the room thinking about. First, when you close your eyes and imagine Jesus, I wish I had a picture of it. If I was better with uh, graphics, I would have, but I am terrible with them. Um, but I imagine the picture of, like, the bearded Jesus with the long hair and the blue eyes, and he's kind of, like, staring up in his face, all kind of soft and luxurious. Um, 
And we think of Jesus in this way because he says things like, I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. And that is how he came, gentle and humble in heart. But how is he coming to return? He's coming to return as a conqueror. And so when you close your eyes and you imagine Jesus, maybe not so much imagining the, uh, the soft Jesus, but imagine him coming on a horse, blazing brightly, his eyes like flames of fire, a sharp two-edged sword coming forth from his mouth by which he will strike down the nations. Imagine Jesus who's come to conquer because when we see Jesus, that's what he's gonna look like. When we see Jesus, he's coming to conquer. So close your eyes and when you pray, and this is, this is sort of a pet peeve of mine, and I don't know if it should be or not, but for, one, for whatever reason, this really strikes me, that when we sing and we're standing, and some of you like it and some of you don't, and some of you are unable, and that's okay, uh, I, I like it because I feel like if I saw Jesus like that, I would not sit down. Um, and so I like to stand when we sing, but I really am bothered by when we pray, somebody comes up to pray, and then we sit like, we're singing praises to God, and then we get the chance to talk to God, and we sit. Like, to me, this is just, I don't know. Uh, that's just not in the notes. That's just a freebie. Anyway, when we imagine God, I want just to, just to begin imagining God as the conquering king that he is. That should lead us to a second application, and that is that if he is a conquering king, we should expect judgment. We should expect judgment. Um, that means that um, we as Christians, I love this line. Let me look at, where was it? Uh, verse, uh, verse 11. Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Because when you see God, you will tremble. Like everyone does. Like you, everybody, they fall on their faces if they're dead. Like you see God and you tremble. But you don't tremble as though one who is going to be killed or cast away or thrown into hell. No, you as a child of God, you belong in his kingdom and your king has come to conquer and to make it possible for you to have a place in his kingdom. And so we should anticipate judgment, but we don't anticipate judgment with fear. Because we no longer fear judgment. Because God has taken care of sin. Sin is done. You're free. You're saved. I, what does it mean to you to read these scriptures again and again that call Jesus Lord and Savior? Has he saved you or has he not? And if he has saved you, then his coming is not an, a place of fear, but it is a place of trembling because when you see God, you'll tremble and you'll rejoice because the king is finally receiving his kingdom. So we should imagine Jesus as a warrior king and we should imagine his coming as a time of great rejoicing, but we should anticipate that judgment and that should change the way we live our lives, right? Because if you know the king is coming to judge, what do you have to do with sin? Nothing. What do you have to do with rebellion? Nothing. And what are you doing? You're searching the scriptures, trying to understand and to find and to, under, to, to revel in him and, and to, as we read in verse uh, chapter one, to uh, meditate on his law day and night because that has now become what we are all about. And I love this last line. Look at your Bibles in verse 12. The last line there, after we've read all of this, all of this sort of very fearsome, very strong language um, about the king coming and um, him rebuking the world with wrath and fury and, and breaking it like a potter's vessel and this warning to, to kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. After all of these fearsome warnings, all of this fearsome truth, 
All of this anticipation and expectation of what the conquering king will do when he comes, there is this last line that gives us great hope and comfort. Blessed, and that word blessed almost always means happy as well. Like happy. Happy are all who take refuge in him. Because we have, sitting before us today, two paths. We have a narrow road, we have a, uh, we have a broad road. We have a choice in what we are going to do. And we have the option to, to, to echo the kings and people of the world and say, God, we don't want anything to do with you. And we have the option today also to bend the knee, to kiss the sun, to put our entire life and hope in him so that these words can be true. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. I notice that word refuge. What's a refuge? It's a strong tower. It's a safe place. It's something where you can go when the whole world is against you. You go into that refuge and you're, and you're safe. It means that if Jesus is the conquering king, if he's the one who is coming to conquer the world, if he's already conquered sin, the devil, and death, what have you to fear, church? The gates of hell will never stand against you. You will never be stopped. What we sang earlier, no weapon formed against you could prosper because your refuge is in the one who has defeated every single enemy. There's nothing left to fear. What strength can we take from that? What power and life are breathed into us from this text? as we anticipate the coming of the conquering king, let us also find great hope and peace. Hide your life in him. Take refuge in him and love his ways that you might live. If you have a decision to make this morning, um, maybe it's to become a Christian, maybe to be baptized, to place membership, something like that. Or maybe it's just been a rough week and you need someone to pray with you. Jack's going to be down front um, ready to pray and to listen, to walk with you. If you need something, please come forward as we stand and sing this song.